0: What does it mean to be a man in the 21st century? What can we learn from people who study and work with men? Why does focusing on masculinity matter? These are some of the questions we are here to answer. I'm Alex Bove, inviting you to talk like a man. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever or wherever you're listening. This is Talk Like a Man. And my guest this week is Diane Brown. Uh, Diane Brown is the project director at Camden Healthy Start. And rather than reading a description of that, we'll talk about it when uh, I talk to her. Um, She works mostly with uh, young unmarried and married fathers of color. She's also an adjunct professor at the Center for Human Sexuality Studies at Widener University and the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Wilmington University. She holds certifications from the National Council of Family Relations as a family life educator, National Center for Family-Centered Practice from the University of Iowa as a family development specialist, and I'm just going to say ASECT from ASECT, uh, which is a long acronym you all can look up, uh, as a certified human sexuality educator, and she's also published in many professional journals, and uh, she's someone that I sit on board meetings with uh, once a month at the Men's Center for Growth and Change, so uh, thank you for being here with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Uh, so I, I, I think for for listeners who don't really know you and your work, I, let's just kind of start from from the basic point of sort of what are you doing at Healthy Start?
1: So Healthy Start is a federally funded program. The goal of the program is to reduce infant mortality primarily among low-income families, so African-Americans, Native Americans, Latinos, so that's really the goal. It's also um, interested in making a difference in disparities in healthcare. So how people are provided services is another important aspect, and we service women um, before during and after pregnancy and we serve the men who are affiliated with them or their children under the age of 18 months and this is a national program there are about a hundred programs across the country.
0: Hmm. And you work in Camden.
1: Yes, I do. I work in Camden, New Jersey.
0: And you work primarily with the fathers, or you 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 work work with all the people, but we're going to talk primarily about the fathers.
1: So that's correct. Um, I am the director, so I oversee the staff, and part of the staff includes a father, uh, a father uh, involvement specialist.
2: Hmm.
0: Now, I don't want to. I guess I don't want to dig too much in the weeds, but I'm just curious. I, was that something that was part of the program from a long way back, or was that something that had to be advocated for as part of the program? Um,
1: in terms of Healthy Start? Well,
0: yeah, in terms of in terms of these, because at first you said Healthy Start infant mortality, and I was thinking about certain things. And then you mentioned these other things that to me don't immediately seem like they're related to infant mortality, but... Surely they are. So
1: they definitely are. Um, well, the program is has been around for a number of years. In fact, my organization has had the program since 1997. Mm. So um, we've had a disparity in health, especially around infant mortality, for a number of years. So the program has been in place for, for a number of years in terms of infant mortality. Some programs realized that men were part of the picture. <laughs> and in that case, they had some kind of a father component. Component. And the program in Camden has had a fatherhood component for almost 10 years. Um, and the idea was um, we need to include fathers. We need to uh, support fathers who may not ever have had children before or may have circumstances that um, keep them away from their children, but yet they want to be involved in the lives of their children. So we have to make that happen. Um, In a way in which people can afford to do that in a way in which it's comfortable being with other people who are in similar situations
0: and do you find that um do you find that it's a to use a colloquial term a relatively easy sell for these fathers or is it sometimes like oh you know
1: i don't really necessarily want to come to this program but i'm gonna come it is definitely a hard sell okay um In the previous years, uh, we would recruit any father in the city of Camden, Hmm. and that made it a little bit easier. We would also go to halfway houses, um, drug treatment facilities um, to try and recruit men to be a part of the program or take our services there. So sometimes grants uh, change over the years, and that was the case uh, this year. The grant changed in that we're supposed to serve men who are affiliated with the women in our program or the child who's in our program. So, yes, it has been very challenging to um, to sell this program to men who don't necessarily feel they need it, think they need it, or even want it, so yes, it's been a hard sell.
0: Is it that they? Is it that you think they? They maybe want to be involved in in this sort of upbringing of the children, but they're they 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 don't want to be part of this particular program, or is it that you feel like they feel like it's not their responsibility at
1: all? So based on the research I did uh, with unmarried fathers, um, it's kind of obvious that several things play into that. The fact that in the African-American community, there aren't many role models. So since we went through the um, Moynihan um, issue and the belief was that men needed to step up to the plate and that's why women were heads of household Hmm. um, and men are not as visible, African-American men may not be as visible in some households. Um, And the whole child welfare system and the way in which it's more punitive than it is helpful. Mm. Those things have played into a man's thinking that he may not want to be involved or there isn't a place for him. Um, And also not having role models or seeing this happen in the community. Uh, in, In my research, several guys said that when they walk down their street, they don't see older black couples. But when they walk in other neighborhoods, they see white couples. And Mm -hmm. so for them, they felt that there weren't role models. Um, There, there's also a dynamic that happens between couples, where the woman now feels that she doesn't necessarily need a man. And she doesn't know some of the values of a father in the life of the child so some of that is some are some of the challenges with men being a part of the program or wanting to be a part of the program
0: hmm. do you ever get cases where the where the father somehow like where the father's advocating for being in but but the mother's saying like he doesn't need to be or
1: uh, we haven't had that yet but I imagine that's there but hmm. we may not hear it okay um, because we do recruit, by way of the mother, as well as through community agencies. And when we go by way of the mother, sometimes the mother may say, like, no, he's not interested, and don't don't even make the uh, the opportunity's not there for the guy to say, yeah, maybe I am. Um, but then there are other times when there aren't men in the lives of these women. Mm-hmm. So, therefore, there is no father for us to connect with.
2: Hmm.
0: So, um, what, so you, so the, one of the big findings was that a a lot of the men you serve don't feel that there are role models for them is, so how does the, how does the program address that?
1: So, um, I was very adamant that we were not going to have a woman in this position. Hmm. Um, and whereas that sexist uh, based on what I had learned from men in the communities, um, they needed to see someone like them be a part of the program rather than seeing their mom or their grandmom saying like, yeah, this is what you need to do. Uh, so we do have a male who facilitates the program. And in the past, we've had a male facilitate the program. And I think that was one of the um, strengths of the model in which we designed so that men could see themselves. Uh, The former person we had, well, both men, because this is the second guy that I'm working with, um, they were both fathers. Hmm. Um, One was a father of young children, so very much in the same place as the fathers that are part of the program. The current father is a little bit older, and his children are grown. So, therefore, um, having someone who's been through being a father um, and can also speak to the positive and negatives of his own experience as a child, a son or a child of a father was also important in terms of the process. Uh, Both of these things help, um, the relationship that has to be developed between the father involvement specialists and the men who are part of the program. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about um, the the Center for Male Engagement at the Community College of Philadelphia, where I think in some ways they use a similar kind of model of like mostly older men who serve as sort of mentors. And I think from what I've talked to with with Derek Perkins, that they sort of see the idea of, of those men as being role models for the young college age men. It's a slightly different situation, but it sounds... Like there's some similarities
1: there are a lot of similarities in terms of men being mentors to other men um in the same way that women and other people have mentors who resemble them or have had similar experiences and i just think that that's a valuable way for humans to talk to other humans and touch their hearts and speak to them and speak from a place where it's not only um, the guidelines were on paper by an organization, but it's the relationship development that's really important to help people think about how they may change things in their life or do things differently, or even see themselves in things they had never seen themselves in before. So a man who never had a father, may not see himself as a father. He becomes a father, and then he's not quite sure what his role is. Um, He probably has heard he's supposed to be the provider, but (laughs) who knows? That may not be the role that he plays. So, yeah, Mm. I think it's really important.
0: Yeah, and I think about I've been thinking a lot about that lately. The whole idea of provider and why we sort of default to the idea that the provider is the economic provider. You know, and why we don't say, well, isn't it something to be a provider of emotional support or isn't it something to be a provider of, you know, um, just as you said, just to just to exist as a healthy and positive role model for someone.
1: Isn't that a form of providing for them? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's um, that has a strong value when um, a father is relating to a female, um, because the research says that. What a male gives a female in the father and daughter relationship is he teaches her how to face the world, a strength or a way in which that a mom may not, um, The simple throwing her up in the air when she's an infant and catching her, knowing that someone's going to be there, and this father figure is the one that's there. There are so many positive things that can come out of that relationship um, when it when it's emotional, when it's supportive, when it's loving, when it's um, the goal is I want to be there for you.
0: Hmm. Yeah, when it's nurturing. Yes. And so I I was thinking about that, and I'm I'm wondering if you have thoughts about. I mean, I think I know how you feel about this because it's probably similar to the way I feel about this. The the, which is the idea that you know men certainly are are capable of nurturance by you know whatever we want to call our nature, but you have you have specific experience because you're talking about some men who maybe are first time fathers and don't have any role model for fatherhood. Um, Do you find that nurturance? seems fairly natural for them, or do you find that 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 can be a struggle?
1: I think it really depends on the individual. Mm -hmm. Some men are very nurturing. Um, We had a man in our program who had um, three children, and one was a newborn, and his wife passed away. And so he learned how to be a nurturer um, because he loved his children. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of it, yes, you can learn, and some of it, is an eight. I believe we have different traits and, and ways in which we approach situations. So I definitely think that men can be taught to be nurturers and some men are just natural nurturers.
0: <laughs> and, and what's, I guess, we may not need to get into all the nuts and bolts, but like, what, is this a program where people come once a week? Or is it like a, is it like a um, contact with the, the mentor more regularly than that? Is it a workshop, is it a group, is it individual?
1: So it's a couple of things. Uh, Initially, the man is enrolled in the program. So we collect a lot of information like other social service programs. Mm -hmm. We ask him what goals he has in terms of being a father or a man, because if he says he's looking for employment or he says um, he wants to go back to school or um, he wants to deal with child support, all of those things, we try to provide a supportive environment by finding the right resources and giving him the tools so that he can connect with those resources. So there's a one-on-one component. There's also a group component, which we haven't started yet. We're going to be implementing an evidence-based curriculum um, so that men look at themselves as individuals, as well as their role as a nurturing father um, and learn some skills and techniques to apply to, infants and toddlers, because that's primarily who we're working with. Uh, The curriculum itself lends itself to older kids as well as teenagers. But our focus is primarily on the younger children. Um, And then we hope to have a group which is more um, open to any male, from which we hope to recruit more and possibly bring more women into the program that way. So it's it's got several components.
0: And that group would be, is that still focused on parenting? Or? It's
1: still, it's going to primarily, that's what it would be, a parenting group, or depending on the men, because that would be, unlike the educational curriculum, this would be like, what do the guys want to talk about? What is it that's important and relevant to them that they want to discuss or they want to deal with, or they just want to um, get together as men and have an opportunity to talk about things in their lives. So that's what we're hoping will happen.
0: That's so interesting. i I'm, I'm I'm reminded of the sort of early days of the second wave of feminism when, and and sort of the late 60s early 70s mm-hmm. when men some men decided to have these consciousness raising groups. And then I feel like 30 years passed and that completely fell out of favor and now I mean MCGCs trying to do these kinds of things you're mm-hmm. trying to do these kinds of things. I feel like there's this wave of interest in getting men back into these groups to talk about things.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And the uh, in the talking, we learn from one another. And so the facilitator, the um, involvement specialist doesn't necessarily have to be the lead. He's just there as a resource. But the men will talk to the men about the different topics. And we've had a group like that before. So we know it does work. It's just a matter of starting it again, uh, with a different facilitator. Uh, but we're really excited about that possibility.
2: Hmm.
0: Do you find, or has your specialist fa- found that it's difficult to get men started
1: with that process? Yes, it is very difficult. Um, we had an event and we really had a not so great showing or not as many people as we wanted to see there. And in some cases, they weren't the men we were looking for. So, yeah, but we don't give up. We keep trying because (laughs) um, we know startup is a slow process. And uh, a lot of people in the community knew about the way we did business before. So now switching gears to really focusing on the connection between um, who's already in the program and who we want to recruit for the program, that, that is a challenge, yes.
0: Yeah. And I'm also thinking within the groups themselves, just sort of, I don't know, getting men to to open up or getting men to communicate verbally. Is that, are you, have you found that that's a challenge?
1: I think approach has a lot to do with it. Okay. Um, And what is in it for them? Hmm. Um, Quite often we feed people. And, um, That's always good. That tends to pizza or uh, yeah, or, yeah, yeah. Make you know. make them feel a little bit more at home. Yeah. Um, a relaxed atmosphere, so they don't feel like they're in school or in the doctor's office. Or, um, a- allowing them to create their own rules and guidelines for how they interact with one another is really important in terms of establishing these groups. And um, even though I conducted focus groups for my research, it was that kind of relaxed atmosphere that i think caused men to forget i was there and just talk um and that was what i was hoping was going to happen because i didn't want to be in the mix i just wanted to hear the stories and and identify what those things were that were relevant and important in terms of their sexual attitudes and beliefs about being an unmarried father
0: Mm. yeah that's so interesting it's it's that is so hard to do in research to sort of be an observer and 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 not influence people as much
1: it is it is really a challenge but it's great once you get there it's it's people just talk freely and share with one another and are surprised and happy and relaxed that somebody else has been there and done that just like they have, and so they're not alone in in the process. And uh, listening to what other people have gained in terms of their experiences are, are really um, gems when it comes to the learning that goes on among folks in groups like that.
0: Yeah, I find it so interesting that Social norms don't really exist for men in general to to have these kinds of conversations. But when you put a facilitator there, it it often can happen fairly quickly and then flow. And it's just, you know, I think that frustrates me sometimes. (laughs) Like, you know, like because many of these men, I imagine, do have other men in their lives. And why are they not talking about these things unless they're in a room with the facilitator and a pizza and you know <laughs> something like
1: that there are there are a lot of men that will reveal that their father figure whoever that was was not talkative didn't disclose information mm-hmm. um and they learned that that was not what they were supposed to do so getting them to a place where it's okay to do that is sometimes challenging
0: hmm. yeah that's really interesting um if I don't know if you can trace an exact moment and you don't have to, this can be a long story, but what got you so interested in this, this work?
1: It's a combination of things. So, um, I worked for the state of New Jersey for 25 years and the last 10 were with a, um, school-based youth services program where, Um, One of the programs was Pregnant and Parenting Teens, and they tried to include the father if he was a high school student as well. We found that in most cases, he was not a high school student, so the numbers were really small. But I realized that some young people did not know how to navigate waters in relationships, especially once a child was present. Um, And as much as The males wanted to be a part, they didn't know how. Then when I was at Widener, um, I have a son who said, Mama, I don't understand what the problem is with people having kids if they just want to have kids. And I'm kind of old fashioned, so that stopped me in my tracks. (laughs) And I wanted to understand this new way of thinking that younger people had about you don't have to have a couple, you don't have to have two people. To raise a child, and um, as I began to look into the literature at that time, there was so much information about absentee fathers mm-hmm. and um, deadbeat fathers, and that hadn't been my experience, and that hadn't been my son's experience. So I wanted to understand this phenomenon more um, than just you know looking at it at the surface, and. Um, it just continued to grow. I continue to read more. And even as I am more um, interested in reproductive justice, that's, men are also part of that in terms of what happens in lives. So I, I guess that's kind of where it started, um, watching the teen fathers and seeing kind of the helplessness that was there. Uh, and the family dynamics that impacted that with the grandmother and all of that w- was amazing to me um, in terms of how people are challenged with living their lives, wanting to be a part of a child's life, and not having um, the tools or the knowledge or the skills to do that. So that's really what got me into it.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I Yeah, I... um. I'm also, yeah, now I'm thinking about what are the pressures on young men from their families of origin related to this? And I guess in some cases you're saying that, well, there really isn't, they they maybe don't have a father or a father figure or something like that. But I mean, what pressures are they getting from uncles or aunts or, or, or their own grandparents when it comes to that?
1: So there were from, again, from the research I did, some men did have pressure, um, some men did not and a lot had to do with um, his own father. Hmm. There was definitely a connection between um, the image of his father, whether his father was in his life or not in his life, and how that played a role on his behavior or his thought process in terms of being a father. Um, A man whose father was not in his life, had very little regard for the child that was his that he may or may not interact with. Uh, whereas uh, men who talked about their father being in their life, fathers talked to them about responsibility and how they needed to step up, not necessarily get married, but to mm-hmm. step up since that was their child. Um, and some men naturally wanted to have a legacy. So it it, re- it, it really was very different. Um, it depended a lot on the man's personality and what he saw in his father and what he saw for himself, and how important that woman was in his life.
2: Hmm,
0: interesting. Yeah, I'm also just thinking about, as we're having this conversation, sort of the, the, what I feel like could be a danger in, there are certain voices in our culture who talk about fatherless, Young men of color or talk about the importance of a male role model and all this stuff and then the conclusions they draw from that are very different I think than what you and I are talking about here, but I want to tease out a little bit more of that nuance so could maybe could you speak a little bit to how you feel maybe when you hear those kinds of statements from politicians or 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 I don't know people on the radio or
1: yeah, it it is very frustrating to hear people draw conclusions about why a young man shows up in the world like he does
2: Mm-mm.
1: based on how um, his family treated him. Uh, and um, I, I can't give people enough information to cause them to think differently because I didn't live their experience, and quite often, depending on um, different places in the country, uh, Midwest, maybe even the South, the way in which people look at families and family dynamics are very different. Um, so therefore, it, yeah, it is, it is very frustrating um, to put blame, so to speak, on mm-hmm. uh, fathers and families about their children or uh, their adult children, or even um, what their children choose for themselves. Um, yeah, I, I I get frustrated that I, I don't have, I don't have a response for them. <laughs> yeah. But I get very frustrated and, and I hear it like in casual speaking people say things I mean, and you can offer some information, but I don't know how much it really sticks. Unless it's important to them, hmm. unless mm-hmm. it impacts them directly, unless, unless you've hit a nerve. Otherwise, I don't have an answer to that. I don't. I, it's, it's frustrating and upsetting.
0: Yeah, and I, I think what what I'm thinking about is that the people who scold and moralize are, you know, that's what can be frustrating. And what I what I've been hearing from you, which I appreciate so much, is that you know, you're not making a moral judgment about th- th- the situations any of these men mm-hmm. find themselves in. You're sort of talking about it as, you know, based on what they want, what their needs are, what they've learned, what they want to learn. Mm-hmm. And instead of just having that sort of attitude of like, oh, and we're going to s- talk about how terrible and morally bankrupt this is and who's to blame. I mean, you, I haven't use, I haven't heard you use anything like blame language.
1: So that's... I, I'm glad you don't <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because yeah. I really try very hard to know that I I didn't live your life, I don't have your life experience. So I can't possibly um, identify blame when I'm here trying to um, be there if you want to do something different with your life. If you know, you, you want to experience something that you may not have experienced before you want to know about a different way or um how someone else does so all those things are are open to you if you choose that um and i just want to be there as a vessel to help that happen Hmm. so you said
0: something that struck me um that men also have a role to play in reproductive justice and i wanted to hear you maybe talk a little bit more about that
1: so um and this goes back to the whole child welfare system Hmm. um I am I think that the system itself uh, punishes men when there are a lot of variables that are, are often not considered when a man becomes a father. Uh, and this also came out in the research. Um, men do often say that they've been trapped. Hmm. And whereas there's no proof, you can hear women also talk about how they want it. To have a baby and they were gonna do whatever they could to have a baby with a particular person so the child welfare system doesn't care about that neither does the court system Mm. Um, all they care about is there's now a child and the child needs to be cared for and if you're the father then this is your commitment a man still has to live so based on what he's earning or what he's making I think the child welfare system and the court system all charge an exorbitant amount in some cases uh, for men who are, are on the lower socioeconomic strata, whether they are working and they are working um, in a job that is, could be considered being underemployed. And then a large percentage may need to go to the child. If, if this was a couple The same amount of money wouldn't be going there. Mm. The money would be divvied up in a different way. So whereas I think that women do need the protection to care for their children, I just think we need reform in our system. And in some places, they've tried, but um, I, I just... And that is reproductive justice—the the justice that a man needs to be a part, if he wants to be a part of that child's life, and a way in which that's reasonable, and a way in which that's equitable between the people who brought this child into the world. So, and I don't think there's a, are a lot of opportunities for low income families to experience that, because you usually need social worker some money some kind of connections to help you through that maze and I don't know that that's available as easily for low income families. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I I don't I don't know about the details of the court system but yeah, it's interesting to me to hear you you talk about this and I I, did, I don't know I mean, do, I'm just guessing here, so totally disabuse me if I'm wrong here, but so is is the assumption kind of that the all the courts are still working with the model that men are going to be the sole financial providers, and, uh, and that's why working class men in particular are hit hard by this?
1: I don't know so much sole provider, but the percentage of support that men have to give, they base it on his employment status. Okay. Um... And if you think about, you you have a salary, but you may have a car payment, you may have rent to pay, you have food, you have like So all of that stuff being considered, the amount that is often uh, um, attached to a man is sometimes greater than he can really afford to live, separate from his child. So the, 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 the disconnect for me is if they're a couple, and they're raising the child, and this is the amount the amount of money he brings in and she is or isn't working they figure it out and it's not so cut and dry like the court like it's not x amount of dollars that goes to this child it's a combination of things that go to the child so whereas mothers can say like no I don't want that man near my child, and sometimes that's an important thing for mm-hmm. safety reasons. Mm-hmm. But other times, um, it's just because she's mad that their relationship didn't work. And in those cases, a man can be hit a little harder um, than in other times.
0: Huh. So it's interesting that you said that because that that's a great segue, because the next question I was going to ask is um, how much of the work you, that you do with men is also about relating to um possibly the women in their lives who who uh, to whom they might be linked by I the betcha. child let's let's not make assumptions about right. relationships
1: right so um we are not therapists, and that's the downside. Mm-hmm. If we were therapists, we would definitely have that component. We don't have that component in the program okay. We aspire to have that further down the road, but right now we don't have that component. and I do think that that, Um, is an important component because when um, you have two people who are both interested in the child, communication, negotiation, all those kinds of skills need to be part of what's going on and that's where we often fall short. In fact, all the programs that came out of um, the Bush administration trying to get people to get married were all around relationship education. However, wanting people to get married and wanting people to know how to negotiate a relationship are two different things. I and was so, just thinking that, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's what they thought. And so th- those programs were not as successful. However, they are still in place in a lot of different places around the country. Um, but both people have to want to work together. They don't have to have to live together or have sex or e- engage in any kind of relationship, but they have to work together if they both want to be in the lives of the children. And that's the kind of thing we would need to have. Um, like, so, like, I guess people who are divorced and have children somehow figure out how to talk to one another mm-hmm. and develop those relationships. Well, that doesn't always happen. Um, when your primary focus is making sure you have food on the table, you can pay your rent or, or those kinds of things uh, that people who um, work with a lot less funds um, are are dealing with. Um, and so it's important that at, at some point we get to that position where we're offering this kind of support or for the, the people who are working to love and care for this child. Uh, I hope that happens sooner than later, but it hasn't happened yet. But yeah, that is important.
0: And I, we've been talking through a very heterosexual lens, uh, yes I, a heterocentric lens. I, I, is it because the government agencies don't particularly recognize, like, if two men had a, had a child, then they probably, the, the government services aren't going to give them as much support?
1: So we've talked about that happening in our program. Um we've also talked about um, lesbians coming into our program. Mm -hmm. And we want to offer the exact same services for them that we offer for anyone else for a heterosexual couple. We haven't had it yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really haven't studied or I'm not sure why that is because I would imagine there are gay and lesbian people that live in the city of Camden. Mm. They may have children. There may even be trans folks who live in the community. I'm not sure that it's so accepted that they be visible Mm. um, in the same way that a heterosexual person is visible. Not saying that they don't live and interact in their community. It's just that they may question our ability to welcome them. Mm -hmm. um, And so they don't come out. In the same way we have a Vietnamese population within the city of Camden we don't see them either. Hmm. Uh, so people have to really feel comfortable um, to come forward and feel that they're going to be welcomed. Um, so I hope it happens, but it hasn't happened yet.
0: That's so interesting. You, you, you just you have, you have no Vietnamese clients?
1: Nope, none.
0: Oh, I wonder why that is. I mean, you you, you um, suggested one, I think, very reasonable explanation, but I, I wonder, could there be anything else?
1: Part of what we understood, because we thought that was kind of odd, was that um, there are some cultures that do not support outside help. Yeah. And we think that that might be the case in the Vietnamese community, mm-hmm. that they keep things within the community. So if you seek help, you seek help from someone else who is Vietnamese or someone else that's been... Uh, recommended or suggested to you from within the community, and we just haven't had that opportunity to reach out and be there for them.
0: Hmm. And uh, I'm thinking um, maybe this is just my own sort of personal experience uh, growing up, and 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 having a lot of my child rearing done by my grandparents. Um, are, 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 I would assume the extended families are involved in, in some of the, the cases. Is that, is that something the program can easily accommodate or is that just something you've learned to accommodate?
1: No, we can accommodate the grandparents. We can also accommodate single fathers. Mm. Um, the family member just has to have the information on the child, the birth of the child. Um, if they can give us information about the mother, Um, In some cases if like if the mother's incarcerated and she's not able to care for a child um, We we still won't have a relationship with the mother But we will have the information about what the birth was like especially when you have um, Preterm birth or a child who has any kind of complications at birth So those kinds of things that family member can share with us So we know best how to make the referrals and connect them the resources, but yeah, we can work with the grandparents. Oh, that's interesting Mm -hmm. um I guess I'm thinking now about like
0: talking about rather than, rather than what you're doing, maybe, you know, what, well, I guess getting back to the sort of the, particularly the, the men that you work with, what are some things that you want us to know that you don't think that we know? Like if, like if we had men like this in our lives and we were trying to talk to them, help them be a good friend, be a good brother, be a good partner or something like that.
1: I think it's important to know what the man wants. Hmm. If the man wants to play a role in the life of the child and is being barred from that, exploring why they think that is. Hmm. Um, Does it have to do with the relationship that was once there between the man and the woman? Is it some outside force? Is it internally the man doesn't feel competent in being a father? Is he scared? That's a daunting thing to see a live body um, that you helped to create. Mm -hmm. um, And hearing stories about babies staying up, and crying at night, not getting, parents are tired, they don't get any sleep. All mm-hmm. those kinds of mm-hmm. things uh, can be anxiety producing and cause someone, even a, a female who just delivered, to m- maybe think this is too much for me. So, talking to the person, getting a sense of what they would like to do, and um, if they have an idea and they haven't done it, maybe having them share, what would it look like if you did do it? Um, if you did become involved, what are some of the things you might like to see happen? Um, and 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 I think just exploring with the person what their thoughts and feelings are, because only that person can actually take a step to do something.
0: Yeah, self-efficacy. Yes. yes. I'm also hearing, you know, you're... Your I'm thinking about fears, you know, because you mentioned some of that. And that that just seems so hard working with men. It seems so hard to get them to really admit their fears and dig into their fears. And I was thinking about um, Brene Brown's idea that, you know, actually courage, vulnerability is one of the most courageous things (laughs) that we can do.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that's the whole idea about... um, It being a reproductive justice issue. Okay. Because reproductive justice is way more than abortion. In fact, I did a workshop around that. Mm -hmm. Um, Because it it, it touches so many uh, different aspects of life. And it touches a man's life because reproductive justice says, I can have a child or not have a child. I can um, raise my child in the way in which I'd like to raise them in the community. And so that definitely applies to men. And... Um, Being able to support men in that area and making sure that any of the intersections that might prohibit him from engaging in child rearing is is so important in terms of this life in which we live at this point, because years ago that was unheard of, like. he's a a guy, like he can't do this. And, And absolutely everything in the 21st century has showed us that anybody can do that if that's what their goal is. So exploring things with people, letting people express themselves and then maybe guiding them to a resource or offering them the name of someone that they could talk to are the ways in which we can support men and folks who are interested in this aspect of life of being a part of the life of a child
0: yeah and i'm thinking that i like what you said about you know the idea that reproductive justice also is about creating the families that we want to create and not necessarily having to follow certain rules about who's the breadwinner who's the stay-at-home person or whether you even have to have those two roles that's right uh you know who's who's responsible for various aspects of 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 not only creating children, but then raising children. Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I certainly was raised in a, um, fairly gender normative household with a, with a father who was, you know, I often think that he really felt that his only role was to sort of provide financially. And I always grew up thinking like, it's great that you're providing for me financially, but like, those those are the very barest of my needs you know like i have all these other needs yes i want i want those to be things ways that we can interact
1: yes that's true and and even um thinking about i don't know if this is i've heard this in a number of of comments from um from people that the their father was not emotional because that's men were not emotional but i don't believe that that's true i think that They may have been emotional behind closed doors or they may have been emotional to a point. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But I do think it it doesn't matter your gender uh, uh, in terms of how emotional you are with a child. You just are or you aren't. But a lot of people talk about fathers not being emotional or emotionally there for them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has a lot to do with, the belief that men were supposed to be in the provider role or protector role. And now we know that that's not the only way that men can be. Yeah. Or,
0: or men are only allowed to be, quote, emotional in, in uh, socially sanctioned places or times. Yes. Uh, my grandmother's funeral, I remember there was there was a lot of crying. Um, and I even saw my father cry, which was very rare. And I was bawling. You know, but there got to be a point where actually some women in the family, like, literally said, you know, I can't believe these men are crying.
1: Really? You know? See? Yeah. See, yeah. that's it. Like, <laughs> yeah. So it comes from a lot of different people in yeah. terms of that opinion that man's not supposed to cry. And I know we, we said that in the 20th century to boys that you're not supposed to cry. Boys don't cry. Boys and, don't cry. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Who said that? But <laughs> Yeah, and how is
0: that? I mean, how could you turn that entire part of yourself off? Mm-hmm. Surely you have those emotions. You're mm-hmm. a human being. That's right. And so it, if boys don't cry, what's happening? You know, with, oh. those emotions don't... It's like, um, you know, uh, they don't just dissipate, usually, anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> yes. I suppose with enough time, they do.
1: <laughs> okay, okay. But... Yeah,
0: I don't think it's healthy.
1: No, it's not. We know that holding things in is not the way to care for yourself and be a healthy individual. And so that's, I believe a lot of men may have suffered over the years because of that. And um, it continues to happen in a lot of communities and
0: i'm i'm thinking is that is that a lot of is that a lot of the work that you and your your specialists do as far as um helping men understand their own capacity for things like that like like you because you've said you've said over and over again the um they just often don't know how to be because they never were taught how to be
1: so it, when we when we talk to men um, it's more like uh, welcoming them to have the conversation that they'd like to have and we don't know that when we first meet them. Hmm. So it takes a few visits before we really know what's important to them and um, allowing them to like express that uh, and feel comfortable with us to share that. So it, it, it gets there, it gets to that point where they have that level of comfort, but it, it takes a while. It doesn't happen immediately. And, um, and, and sometimes it doesn't happen for women either. Uh, it doesn't happen for people uh, that they automatically are willing to share. I, I think people are very different. Um, Sometimes you'll have a few people in a group who are very talkative and share easily and others not so much and it's the people not so much that it takes us a little bit more time to um, develop that relationship and have that comfort so that they can share things
0: yeah I'm thinking about my uh, my request this semester to my students uh, that uh, they introduce themselves via can- via the the discussion boards on canvas. And you know, a few of them jumped right in and and were friendly and everything. And a whole bunch of them have not introduced themselves yet. So I'm, it's going to be interesting to me to get there that the first couple of days of class and sort of figure out like what's going on, you know, Widener changed me as a teacher in terms of, I spend a lot of time at the beginning of the semester now, just doing group dynamics. And, um, it's really interesting to hear from you the way that your program is, because I'm thinking like, boy, I, I wish I could do this. I wish I could be this individualized <laughs> yeah, in, yeah. In, in my classrooms. I can't. I mean, I just can't. You know, the numbers are just not, just don't make it possible.
1: So Wilmington has a similar requirement that we, as the instructor, introduce ourselves. Um, on the discussion boards, as well as the students. That's the first day of class. The expectation is that they're introducing themselves and they can even um, make a video so that we can see them. Oh, so that's great. Yeah. So, yeah, and we're, and we're using Canvas as well.
0: So this is also a good segue, because um, I am curious about sort of the teaching that you're doing at, at Wilmington and also Widener um which which courses are you teaching
1: so uh, last summer i taught reproductive justice um and it's an introductory level course even though it's a graduate course um is it in I, like sociology or psychology no, 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 or it's it's, it's in uh, human sexuality oh, oh, Widener. yeah at Widener, oh, okay, okay, yes, Widener yes. and uh the idea was i think that's an aspect of sexuality that people need to be aware of it's Um, With the organization Sister Song being very um, active in terms of advocacy and um, uh, work around the country, Um, I think it's something that people need to be familiar with and it's also heavily uh, something dealing with women of color. Um, As I said, men are also part of that picture, but I think the focus from Sister Song is primarily on women and and, uh, supporting the way in which they birth their children, the way in which they um, are able to breastfeed, the way in which they are able to interact in the world um, um, being a woman and um, raising children in the way in which they'd like to raise children. But I think that um, one of the courses that I've taught at Wilmington is adolescent development and then development across the lifespan is what I'll be teaching in the fall. Um, It's very similar to um, Widener's courses in terms of development because you get a little bit of development in the theories class and you get development in some of the other classes at Widener. The emphasis just unfortunately is not on sexuality, so it's the Mm. general overall view of... um, Development. Yeah, Erickson,
0: Piaget. All that stuff.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You do have an opportunity to introduce sexuality at every stage of life. So that is something that they're going to hear. Um, And I'm anxiously awaiting being able to teach a human sexuality course because I am in the behavioral um, sciences. Um, What is it? Division unit section of Wilmington. So um, and this course is in psychology. So, um, yeah,
0: that's really interesting. Yeah. So to bring us back a little bit to your your day job, let's say, Mm -hmm. um. How do how does sexuality enter into your job, especially because I mean, like things that I'm thinking about are that we as a culture often assume that there's no such thing as sort of infant sexuality, (laughs) but of course there are some sexual elements of infants' existence. Um, How do you sort of how do you navigate that?
1: So I've um, I've actually done uh, a workshop for Healthy Start nationally. And um, the topic was sexuality birth to age two with a big question mark. Mm -hmm. And um, we did talk about development. And we talked about um, things that happen in utero to a fetus. Uh, We talked about parents, um, um, adult lens that often interferes with child development and Mm -hmm. what might be A normal reaction to touching um, an erect penis of a little boy um, might cause parents to be kind of anxious or concerned. And uh, we talked about expectations of children as they develop in terms of their sexual behavior, their identification of um, their gender identity Mm. as they as they grow. So, yeah, I've done that. And I've also educated my staff. And I also talk to the women who are in our program about understanding their child's development um, and sexual development and some of the roles that they might play in that. And some of it's watching and observing as opposed to guiding and directing. Uh, so yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, I'm just thinking about a Facebook friend who posted uh, or- today i think that she said something like you know the conversation i had with my five-year-old about how you shouldn't touch other people's bottoms or 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 have your bottom be touched and i was thinking well if it's two five-year-olds like i mean yes i can see how that could be a problem but i could also see maybe it's just two five-year-olds learning about their bodies
1: that's very true that uh, that's an a part of development that happens quite frequently, especially if a child doesn't have a sibling of a different gender. Mm. Um, They're curious, like, well, we don't exactly look the same. And so there are a lot of opportunities for parents to uh, provide information through books, movies, things like that, that they can learn how they might not automatically assume that the behavior they're observing is sexual, as opposed to developmental and it's perfectly fine. yeah. Mm. Perfectly normal, like the book says. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm also wondering, you know, is there, do you, do you find that there's, I, I've, I've sometimes heard men talk about how um, heterosexual men with daughters talking about how they worry that if they're too affectionate or they're too close or their daughter sits on their lap or something that the people are going to have the wrong idea about that. Is that something that you think do you, do you see that? Do you hear that?
1: Uh, not only do I hear that, I hear that as young as infants, some males don't want to change diapers of girls. Yeah. Um, so there are, yeah. And, and again, this is our adult lens. This is sometimes cultural things that we've been taught and raised with. So yeah, that's that. Like, there, there are concerns that people have uh, in terms of adult behavior and how that might be perceived by others who see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and unless they have some level of education or exposure to conversations, that thinking will continue. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I just, I find that, I find that it just makes me sad to hear that. You it know? is. And not so much sad. For the person, because I—it's usually a well-intentioned person—and I can also understand. I mean, as a culture, like pedophile pedophilia does yeah. exist, yes, and as true. you said earlier, you know, intimate partner violence does exist, yes. and so we have to acknowledge that these are possibilities. But also, we have to be able, I would think, to relate to people with the assumption that probably that's not what's happening. Right. Right. Um, And I guess when with also with government involved, government funding involved, I, I would imagine the lens is just to be sort of cautious to the point of maybe maybe you and I might consider too cautious.
1: Yeah, So, and the, the, it's a, such a fine line because you, you don't want harm to come to anyone, right. and yet you don't want to restrict someone caring for a child and being genuine in what they're giving in terms of love and affection. So it is a very thin line in terms of how we advise or recommend or suggest um a father think in terms of sitting his daughter on his lap or, and I think a lot has to do with the individual and what they think. And, um, because we don't know what's in the hearts and minds of everyone. Um, I would not ever tell a father don't do that unless there was some information that I had Mm -hmm. that would say that the child is in danger. Um, But I think that's a very personal decision that people make um, in terms of what they do with their children. Um, And if the thought is in your head, we need to get you some help.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But if the thought's not in your head, don't worry about what other people think. Just... Love your child, um, and and if sitting your child on your lap or playing with your child or tickling your child is something that you've always done, and there is no harm um, in your mind or the individual's mind, um, I would say love your child.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about my, in my family of origin, um, quick pecks on the lips were quite common for all the relatives. Mm -hmm. But I'm also thinking like how that might look from the outside, you know, and how even with very rigid gender norms in some ways, there was this form of affection that was completely appropriate. Um, and, and it just, it, I'm just, I guess I'm thinking of this more, not to disclose this to you and my audience, but just to sort of think about like how you said it's so important to, to recognize the, um, what is it? The emic versus etic or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the, the terms of like the, the macro versus the or micro. Macro,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, the whole, the way in which we look at relationships now are very different in terms of how they were last years ago. And even from our childhood, your childhood and my childhood, things have changed um, quite a bit. However, older people still hold on to the same ideas. And Mm -hmm. when they look at younger families, they do pass judgment based on what their experiences were growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, So I really think that families need to just trust that their relationships are sound. Um, and unless someone else sees something and intervenes, I don't know. It's very hard to make that kind of assessment, not knowing all there is to know about the family. Cause what you see might not be what you think you see. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, so I think, yeah, we're, I think we're sort of approaching our, our, our time. Okay. Um, my, the final question I always ask is, uh, is there anything that I haven't asked that you would have wanted me to ask you?
1: Um, I don't think so. I, I, I think you covered a, a a lot of ground, um, especially delving into, um, education for families about young children and bringing sexuality into the, into the picture and, I think you covered a lot of ground, and um, I just want to say thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, thank you too. Uh, if people want to reach you, how how best should they reach you?
1: So, um, do we give out email? You can. Responses?
0: Well, whatever okay. you, whatever. <laughs> I'm. I, if you're imagining someone listening to this and saying that they might want to get in touch with you in some way, either to seek the help of your organization or just because they were interested in something you said and they want to pick your brain.
1: Okay. So, um there is a website, um it's camdenhealthystart.org. Mm-hmm. Um there is a Facebook page. Um again, it's camdenhealthystart.org okay. <laughs> on Facebook. Um I can be reached um through either of those. Um I also can be reached at DR Brown, Brown with an E. 22 at gmail.com
0: and uh, you are a funded organization but do you do people can people donate or
1: oh yeah sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I
0: figured you were probably like a 503 CD yeah, okay. or whatever it
1: is. I, I actually work for the Southern New Jersey Perinatal Cooperative. Okay. And that's the organization that was funded to have Camden Healthy Start. So, yes, we are a nonprofit and we do accept donations. In fact, um, people donate to Healthy Start books, clothing, Um personal items and we need to think of like what things would men appreciate because we haven't received donations for men but what might a man like to have like do men need razors do men need i don't know like there there might be great donations that can be offered to men
0: oh that's wonderful yeah thank you for that. and that's actually something i i i'm i'm char- I'm, I'm charging everyone listening to this <laughs> with the responsibility of thinking of this because, yeah, we ought to be able to brainstorm this yes well, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much
0: So there you have it. My conversation with Diane Brown um, it was just wonderful i i I feel like I learned so much in that conversation, um you know, hearing about the struggles of young men and women of color and uh, new parents and uh, I was just so struck by uh, Diane's empathy for men and um the but also again the way in which we have this cultural conversation about men or fatherless men or role models. And I, I think we just, we go wrong in that cultural conversation. Oftentimes we miss so much of the nuance and I really appreciated that in this episode, we were able to get into that. So, uh, I, I really enjoyed listening to her. I hope you also enjoyed listening to her and this podcast. If you would like to know more about the project and, or support it, please visit talk like a Uh, also, uh, There's a Patreon page and you can get to that via talklikeman.net if you'd like to be a supporter. And one of the fringe benefits of being a supporter uh, at a certain level, which I'll let you find out for yourself, is that I announce you as a producer on every episode. And so I would like to give special thanks to Gadi Ben Yehuda, uh, producer of the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. And uh, I will talk to you next time. Talk Like a Man is affiliated with the Men's Center for Growth and Change, a Philadelphia-based nonprofit organization whose mission is to help men and boys realize their full potential to love and positively connect with others. For more information, please visit mencenterphilly.org. To find out more about the Talk Like a Man project, visit talklikeaman.net.